It is once again a joy and a pleasure to be with you all. I invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 18. For our New Testament reading, I will read verses 9 through 14. Luke chapter 18, beginning at verse 9. This is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. This is the very word of God, and Jesus himself spoke these words. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified, rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I invite you now to turn to the Old Testament, to the book of Psalms, to Psalm 32. This morning, we will look at Psalm 32. Let us hear the word of God. How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is faithful pray to you immediately. When great floodwaters come, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. 
You protect me from trouble. You surround me with joyful shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and show you the way to go. With my eye on you, I will give counsel. Do not be like a horse or mule without understanding that must be controlled with bit and bridle or else it will not come near you. Many pains come to the wicked, but to the one who trusts in the Lord, but the one who trusts in the Lord will have faithful love surrounding him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let us pray. Eternal God and Heavenly Father, we are filled with joy that we who are lost sinners and under condemnation, we who are not right with God or man may find your mercy and your forgiveness may find restoration of our relationship with you and with those in our lives through confessing our sins, through trusting in Christ, through loving and caring for those we have wronged. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. If there is anything that a person that every person longs for, that every human heart is desperate to have, it is a sense of inner calm and peace. It is a deep and abiding happiness and joy. It is a perception that God's favor and blessing rests upon them. But how can we obtain what every human soul so desperately feels the need for. Where can we find it? Our society spends a huge amount of money every year on entertainment, on amusements, on activities, on eating out, on buying clothes, on all forms of pampering, and every new experience imaginable. And these things do lift our spirits. They do bring delight to human hearts. But there is a darkness that comes to our souls that even the greatest joys of this world cannot dispel. It is the nagging feeling that we have done something wrong or failed to do something that we ought to have done. It is the fearful anxiety that we will get caught for what we have done and suffer great loss or punishment. It is the crushing sense that we are guilty of evil committed against people and of rebellion committed against God. Trying to ignore the nagging feeling, trying to deny the fearful anxiety, trying to use pleasures to distract ourselves from the crushing guilt 
none of these address the problem that this sense of dread is warning us about. You see, God is the one who created our emotions and he created them for our benefit, both the positive and the negative ones. And our negative emotions are meant by God to be merciful warning signs that something in our life is wrong and that we need to address it. God has written His holy law, not only in the Bible, not only on tablets of stone, but He has written it upon the heart of every person in this world. And this is what we call our conscience. Our conscience acts very much like the oil light on the dashboard of your car. And you know that when that light comes on, something very bad is taking place. There is no oil in the engine. And if you do not stop immediately and put oil into the engine, that engine will freeze up and be destroyed. And that is pretty much the end of your car. That warning light is there for a reason. But if you look at that warning light going off and blinking and you are annoyed at it, why is it going off? Why does it keep doing that? And you say, I'm going to fix this problem. And you get a hammer. <laughs> and you strike that light. And you break it. And you know what? It doesn't go off anymore. It doesn't bug you. It doesn't annoy you. Problem solved, right? Wrong. Very wrong. And if we use excuses for our sins, if we use pleasures to help us forget about that a nagging conscience, if we use drugs or anything to deaden our awareness of our conscience's conviction of us, we have only gotten rid of the annoying warning while we continue on a path towards far worse things taking place in our lives. Many have unfortunately learned to respond to the difficult situations in their lives in ways that are truly unhelpful, such as fear or flight, running away from their responsibilities, or such as anger and attacking those who point out their sinful behaviors. But these are bad responses that only make the situation worse, not better. God tells us in Psalm 32 that the path for us to find peace in our conscience and with God, the path to spiritual joy for our soul, the path to an inner sense of God's favor and blessing, the path to a conscience that is clean and unconvicting and pure in the sight of God and men is not through ignoring or denying or concealing our sinful thoughts and words and deeds, but rather it is through our confessing all our sins to God and confessing our sins also to those 
whom we have sinned against. In the first five verses of this psalm, we observe David's experience with concealing sin. One as great as David tried this way out, he tried to hide and conceal his sin, and he tells us just how badly that went. God's prophet shows us the way to true and lasting joy, to spiritual calm and peace, and to eternal favor and blessing from God. In verses 1 and 2, God says through his prophet David, How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity, and in whose spirit is no deceit. Notice his repetition. The true and lasting joy in our hearts comes from confessing our sins to God and confessing them to those we have wronged. And through receiving the forgiveness for sins that God can give us and they can give us. Note that we are required to confess all our sins to God. Because all our sins against people are also sins against God. He is the one that has said, this is wrong and you ought not to do it. God has commanded us firstly to love God with all our being. And he has commanded us secondly to love all our neighbors, all those with whom we come into contact, to the same degree that we love ourselves. Wow, that's quite a command. Now, our responsibility to confess all our sins to God does not take away our responsibility to also confess our sins to the people that we have sinned against, that we have hurt, that we have harmed. This is because if we do not also confess our sins to those we have wronged, and if we do not seek to make right those wrongs we have done to them, we have not truly repented of our sins. And God tells us that he will not, not forgive our sins. Remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, 21 to 24. He said to us, You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, Do not murder. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Notice how here he talks about murder that can take place with words. Not, not with a gun, not with a knife, not, not with a weapon, but merely with words. Everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to ju- judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says you fool will be subject to hell fire. Did you think of those harsh, critical, demeaning words you wrote on Twitter or on other media online that that was sufficient to condemn you to hell for eternity? Did you realize the seriousness of murdering people with your words? But let us go on here. Jesus goes on to say, so if you are offering your gift on the altar, what is he saying? If you are going to worship God, if you are going to offer to God 
together with all God's people, your worship to God, your gift to God, your love of God, if you're going to worship God, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you. In other words, you've sinned against them and you've never confessed it. You've never gone to them. You've never dealt with it. What does Jesus say? He says, leave your gift there in front of the altar. It's not time to bring it. It won't be accepted by God. God says your worship is unacceptable if you have not dealt with your sins against others. He says, first... Go and be reconciled with your brother or sister. And then come and offer your gift. Then come and offer your worship to God. And it will be a delight to his heart. Jesus tells us, if we have not confessed our sins to those we have wronged, if we have not made those things right, God does not hear and forgive our plea for forgiveness. He calls upon us to demonstrate that we are truly humble and repentant about our sins that we have confessed. And don't we know deep down in our hearts, even though we try to ignore it, we try to deny it, we, we try to hide it, don't we know that we need to go to the person we have wronged? We need to admit our sin. Perhaps that is the most difficult, hardest thing to ever do in your life, to admit to someone else that you were wrong and you sinned and you asked for them to forgive you. It's easy to go and say, well, yeah, I did something wrong, but you know it was your fault. This is why it was your fault. And then go into a lengthy explanation why it was their fault and just brush over our contribution to the argument, our contribution to the fight, our sinful actions. God tells us we don't need to tell them about their sin. He will deal with them about their sin. We need to tell them about our sin and ask their forgiveness. We need to make it right. Our unconfessed sin is what eats at our soul Our unconfessed sin is what we are terrified may be exposed and found out. Our unconfessed sin is what robs us of sleep. Our unconfessed sin is what denies us any lasting joy in life. And David share, shares his own experience in verses 3 through 4. You might say, David, stop beating up on us. What about you? Look at what you did. David shares his experience in verses 3 and 4. He says, when I kept silent... My bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. Selah. Verse 3 is very possibly referring to David's sin of adultery with Bathsheba. And it wasn't just adultery, it was murder. He sought to cover up his sin of adultery by ordering his commander-in-chief, Joab, to set Bathsheba's husband in the front of the battle and then have the troops fall back from him so that Bathsheba would be killed and David could take, Bathsheba's husband would be killed and David could take Bathsheba to be his own wife, seemingly innocently. 
David hid his sin. And David did not consider confessing it until God sent the prophet David to confront him about it and tell him a parable about a man who took another man's lamb that was his pet lamb and killed it and served it. And David cries out, that's horrible. That man needs to be judged. And Nathan said, You, you are the man. And David was crushed because he knew it was true. As a result, David experienced terrible mental and physical anguish that comes from unconfessed and undealt with sin. David says that his silence on this matter, his unconfessed sin resulted in his bones, which likely stands here for his entire body, becoming like they were old and worn out. Now this may merely be metaphorical, but it appears that David is saying that he suffered both physical pain and suffering from the stress and mental anguish from his unconfessed sin. He was a wreck. Note what verse 4 says is the source of his groaning that leads to his physical deterioration. He says, For day and night your hand, your hand, O God, was heavy on me, pushing down, pushing down, bearing down. David, God is saying, When? When are you going to get right? When are you going to confess this? When? God is the one who is pressing down upon his soul in an unrelenting way. But how is God pressing on him? We might think of God's use of his word mentioned in Psalm 2, which the the psalmist meditated on day and night. God certainly uses his word to convict us of sin, but God can even press upon and convict of sin those who do not read his word. God can use the sense of right and wrong which he has planted in our consciences to convict us and to create this misery of spirit. And this is from God in mercy because we need the peace that comes from confessing our sins and finding forgiveness. We need the spiritual and eternal life that comes from this act. Romans chapter 2 and verses 14 through 16 says... So when Gentiles, who do not by nature have the law... Now when he says Gentiles here, he's really not talking to all you people, who probably almost every one of you is a Gentile, not a Jew. Understand that the Jews in the the days the Bible were written, the Gentiles, they were referring to non-believers, unchristians. So really the word Gentile here means unbelievers, those who don't know God. So when unbelievers who do not by nature have the law do what the law demands, those he's saying when those who are not believers, not Christians, they don't go to church and they don't know, they don't know what the Word of God says. They haven't heard it, they haven't been taught it. Yet when they do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law. What's the work of the law? The work of the law is it's convicting of us. 
They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. God's law is convicting them. But how does that law work in that way? It is because God has written His law upon the hearts of every man. Yes, we can sin against that. We can sear our conscience by doing wrong over and over again. But God's law, He has written on the heart and it brings conviction and it brings misery to all those who strive to not listen. Even though they may say, no, no, God's word is wrong and what I'm doing is good and right. Nevertheless, God's law continues to oppress them and crush them and break their hearts. God is not left without a witness, even among those who reject His Word. And it goes on to say their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts either accuse or even excuse them on the day when God judges what people have kept secret according to my gospel through Christ Jesus. That conscience does that work here and now, but in the day of Christ's return, Christ Himself will do that work of saying, guilty, not guilty. Guilty, not guilty. David concludes verse 4 by saying, My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. This is what unconfessed sin did to David. He had... No strength, no drive, no motivation to do anything. He no doubt flopped down on the couch and lie there, unable to think or move or do. Now, I have an illustration for you about what that's like physically because uh, I lived in Greenville, South Carolina one summer. Now, I went to school there at Bob Jones University, and, and normally I... I, I, I lived there the whole year while I was there, and I had a little mobile home, and I had this tiny, tiny little plot of grass outside my mobile home. In fact, if you added all the grass up, it probably had less surface area than the mobile home itself. It was just a tiny little yard, and I went out in the summer, and it was hot, and it was humid, and I had this little push mower, and I mowed this tiny little yard, and I went back in the house, and I flopped down on the couch, and I could not move. I was exhausted. I was wiped out. But David says, unconfessed sin can destroy your strength, your energy, your drive, your peace, even more so than the heat of a summer and the humidity of a summer. David is using a very vivid illustration to paint the picture of the physical and mental and spiritual exhaustion that comes to us as a result of having to live with an accusing conscience as a result of our unconfessed sin. So when God sent Nathan to David to expose his atrocious sins of adultery and murder, was that a terrible disaster for David to have his terrible sins exposed, or was it a merciful work of God's grace? It is true that David did suffer earthly consequences for his sins. But as a result of confessing and repenting of his sins, God granted him forgiveness. 
And that is what brought peace and relief to David's tortured soul. We must remember that there are many human sins. There are many things that we do in this life that we can never make right before God. We, we can never go back and completely reverse the damage we have done to people. The damage of reputations that is spread far far and wide when one thing is said on the internet you can't stop it it can go to the ends of the earth and there are sins that people commit against others and and harm them physically and mentally and emotionally and and in many other ways that there's no way they can go back and undo that great harm they have done We can never make right the wrongs of many awful sins. We can never pay the penalty for them. But wonder of wonders, grace upon grace, the infinite suffering of Jesus Christ can lift up, can take away, can cover forever, can wipe out our sins that we can be accepted with God. And through Christ we can find restoration with those we have harmed in many, if not all cases. We can repent of our sins and receive God's gift of forgiveness, which enables us to stand before God and be accepted in His sight as blameless, not because of our deeds, not because of our making everything right, but because of the perfect righteousness of Christ which has been credited to our account. As verse 2 says, the one who does not seek to hide his sins through deceit, but confesses them, will not be charged by God with the iniquity of his sins. There is peace for souls that are so tormented, not only that they did wrong, but that they can never undo it. There is peace for souls to be found in Christ. In verse 5, David proclaims the tremendous forgiveness and peace that comes to the one who confesses his sins. He says, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Selah. As terrified as you are that someone will find out what you did, there's nothing worse than hiding your sin and never confess it. Never confessing it. You will live in constant fear of your sin being found out. Your soul will be crushed by the guilt of your sin. You will face the eternal condemnation of God for your unrepentance. As God says in Romans 2.5, Because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's judgment is revealed. But God says to us, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins. Through Christ. He is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
It is always better to confess your sins. It is always better to do it right now, immediately. To not ignore them, to not deny your sins, to not excuse your sins, to not hide your sins. The consequences of confessing your sins are always infinitely less than the consequences of not confessing them. Your confession and God's forgiveness clears your guilty conscience. It forgives your sins. It reconciles you to God. It holds out the hope of reconciliation with those people you have wronged. When you accidentally break something, apologize for it. Replace what you have broken and restore your relationship with the person. When you sin against a person, ask forgiveness for the harsh words you have said or written. If you have spoken harshly before many people or on the internet, ask for forgiveness before all those people. Do not make excuses for your sin or blame the other person for it. Simply ask for forgiveness for what you did. And if you have taken something, return it. If you have lied about something, tell the truth to all who heard it. Admit you did wrong. Make the matter right. Restore the relationship. And move on with your life with the great joy of a clean conscience and a restored relationship. If you try to hide your sin, excuse your sin, lie about your sin, deceive people about your sin, you are only only adding to your guilt before God and men. You will incur greater guilt and greater punishment. Your conscience will torment you. You will live with a constant fear of being found out and punished. And you are less and less likely to ever restore your relationship with those you have wronged you are more and more likely to live a life that is a lie. You are basing your reputation on constantly hiding your sins instead upon the merciful forgiveness of Jesus Christ and people. And you are dishonoring the name of the Savior who died to forgive sins and create peace between you and God and you and people. Parents, I speak to you. If you are prevented from keeping your word when you promise to do something for your children, apologize to them and find a way to make it right. Parents, when you sin against your children, ask for forgiveness and make it right. Do not fear for your children to see you as a sinner who confesses his sins and strives to make right what you have done wrong? If you do not confess your sins to your children, you are teaching your children to hide their sins and to pretend to be righteous when they are not. You are teaching your children to be hypocrites if you never confess your sin to your children, your sins against them. Young people, Confess your sins. Don't fear the consequences. The consequences are the least when you admit the wrong or sin, and you do it right away. 
The consequences are always far less than they will be if you try to hide it, excuse it, deny it, lie about it, blame the other person for it. Confess it now. Strive to make it right. This opens the door to receiving forgiveness from people and from God. This opens the door to restoring the relationship, to receiving a clear, unburdened conscience, to being free of guilt and fear of punishment, and bringing honor to the name of your God and Savior. We should note that the the word selah, which occurs at the end of verses 4 and 5, may mean to pause and meditate. God is calling all of us to pause and think about the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual anguish that is caused by unconfessed sin. And he is also calling us to think about the incredible joy and peace and blessing that comes to those who confess their sins. Now in verses 6 through 11, we turn to David's exhortation to confess sin. God says through his prophet David in verses 6 and 7, Therefore let everyone who is faithful pray to you immediately. When great floodwaters come, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with joyful shouts of deliverance. Selah. Notice that David now exhorts everyone to pray to God immediately, to immediately confess their sins to God, so that they may find the blessing of forgiveness. The word immediately is literally at a time of finding. This implies that there are times when it is too late to find God and receive forgiveness. Jesus told the parable of the rich fool. He was such a person. He spent his whole life laying up treasures on earth, and he never sought to know God. And in Luke 12, 19, Jesus declared God's words to the rich fool. He said, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is demanded of you. It's too late, too late to repent. Life is over. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? You can't take them with you. David goes on in verse 6 to say about the one who prays and confesses his sins to God. When great floodwaters come, they will not reach him. David draws on the account of the flood in Genesis 6, 6 through 8, which took away the lives of all who did not heed Noah's call to repent. And the waters of the flood were a picture of God's eternal judgment that comes to all who do not repent of their sins against God and man. Now in verse 7, David delights in the joy that God gives to the repentant, both in this life and for all eternity. He says to God, You are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with joyful shouts of deliverance. Selah. Note that he uses the word selah for the final time in this psalm, calling us to pause and meditate on how those who do not hide their sin, but those who openly confess their sins to God, will have their souls hidden safe in the arms of God forever. In verses 8 and 9, David returns to exhorting everyone to not be foolish and unrepentant. 
He says in verse 8, I will instruct you and show you the way to go. With my eye on you, I will give counsel. Now, Bible scholars debate whether this statement is a direct statement by God to his people or it is a statement of David to the people of God. In the end, the result is the same because King David foreshadows the coming of Jesus Christ, who is our God and King, and who will guide us in the way of salvation and give us counsel. The word, the Hebrew word for instruct here is the same word that occurs in the title of the psalm where we read a maskil, a maskil of David. And this Hebrew word refers to contemplation, insight, or instruction. And we can translate verse 8 as, I will give you insight and show you the way to go. With my eye on you, I will give counsel. Jesus has his eye on each of his people, protecting us and caring for us, and also guiding us how to deal with our mess-ups in life, how to deal with our sins in life, because there is perhaps no more critical thing in our, in our Christian life than dealing with our sins, confessing them and coming to Christ as our Savior that we may have eternal life and confessing our sins to people that we may restore relationships that have been broken. In verse 9, David warns us against acting like a horse or a mule. Now, you may love horses, but this horse or mule in mind here is one that's too stubborn to obey. And it requires a bit and bridle to control it. This is a picture of the stubborn person who refuses to confess his sins and who tragically reaps the consequences. Verse 10 reminds us of those consequences. It begins, many pains come to the wicked. This appears to speak of the anguish that comes to those who do not repent of their sins in this life. The great floodwaters in verse 6, which is literally many waters, Those great floodwaters do not reach to the faithful, but they do come to the wicked. And they appear to be a picture of both physical death and eternal punishment. Finally, verses 10 and 11 conclude with an exuberant declaration that those who humbly confess their sins will be surrounded, will be encased in, will be protected by, will be abundantly overflowed with God's faithful love. Therefore, they have great cause to be glad, rejoice, and shout for joy. Let us heed God's final words to us in this psalm. Many pains come to the wicked, but the one who trusts in the Lord will have faithful love surrounding him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy. God has forgiven your sins. You are his. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let us pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we confess that we do not deserve your good gifts in this world or in the world to come. We acknowledge that our sins are many, that they are grievous in your sight and harmful 
to ourselves and those around us. We confess that your holy law sets before us all what is good and holy. It calls us to worship and praise you. It calls us to love you with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. For you are the one who has created us and takes care of us. We acknowledge that your holy law also calls us to love our neighbors, all those around us that we have the opportunity to do good to, and to love them to the degree that we love ourselves. We acknowledge that you call us to confess to you and to them our daily sins against you and against them, and to seek forgiveness from you and reconciliation with them. We acknowledge that it is through loving you with all our being and loving and serving our neighbors as we love ourselves that we find the secret to meaning and purpose in our lives. And we find the fountain of true joy and lasting peace. And we find your favor and blessing. We pray that you would enable us to have good and godly relations with all those around us and to have open fellowship with you that is unhindered by sin for it is in the name of our sinless Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that we pray Amen